Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. What shall I say of Lucrezia Borgia? She shall wax in beauty, virtue, chastity, and good fortune no less than a shoot that into fertile soil has sunk its root as brass beside gold, or tin near silver, as the wild poppy by the crimson rose, as the pale willow by the fir tree ever, as stained glass by bright crystal shows, all will seem dull next her whom I honour, all those as yet unborn who I chose, ere now one in wisdom and rare beauty, in every virtue of respect most worthy, and then, too, above every other praise that shall be granted her, alive or dead, is that she'll educate in princely ways her fair Ercole, all her sons so bred. So, adding honour to their honour's blaze, where they their light on arms counsel shed, thus we find the wine's aroma, whether for good or bad, in new casks will linger. Orlando's Frenzy by Ludovico Ariosto, 1516 Welcome to the other half. Episode 4.16, Lucrezia Borgia, A Pearl in This World. Last time, Lucrezia Borgia departed Rome for the final time to start her new life in the Duchy of Ferrara, married to its heir, Alfonso. The controversy surrounding the Borgia family and arguments over her allowance led her to cutting herself off from the Ferrara court, and then an outbreak of malaria caused her to tragically miscarry their first child together. Today we shall see her emerge from her self-imposed isolation, start a family, and meet the next great love of her life. And, I don't mean her husband. We're currently just over halfway through this series on the women of the Vatican. We have one more subject from the Italian Renaissance to come, with three more coming after that, bringing us to a nice round ten women covered in this series. I've been burned before making predictions about how long this will take. Frankly, I have no idea. But I am now starting to think about topics for season 
five. If you have any ideas of what you would like me to cover, then please do send me an email at theotherhalfpodcast at gmail.com or shoot me a message on Facebook or Twitter. Of course, you will have the opportunity to vote on the topics covered in the next season when the time comes later in the year if you are a supporter on Patreon. If you would like to support the show, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. Pietro Bembo was the quintessential itinerant Italian poet. The wealthy, handsome Venetian travelled the peninsula, penning missives on the nature of love. He was particularly interested in the distinction between the sensual, the loving of a person for her personality, intelligence and grace, over the depraved, being physically attractive but otherwise dishonest and wicked. A true libertine, he decreed that love and marriage were incompatible. Tall, blonde, and eloquent as hell, Pietro was as popular with the ladies as his writing was with the critics. After breaking a few too many hearts in Venice, his astrologer advised him to settle in Ferrara, a well-known centre of culture and writing. Most of all, though, he was fascinated by Lucrezia Borgia. Here was the ideal of the sensual woman, albeit with good looks to match. Intelligent, charming and graceful, she was already attracting the attention of the literary men of the court, and Bembo most of all. They were officially introduced by their mutual friend, Ercole Strozzi. Strozzi was another poet, around seven years older than Lucrezia, and a hopeless romantic. He was famously infatuated with a woman married to a powerful nobleman, and was well-connected at court. He and Lucrezia were like-minded souls, enjoying the finer things in life and stretching their bank balances to the limit to buy the finest clothes and accessories. As two outsiders in Ferrara, they built an easy and strong friendship. He, more than anyone else, helped her emerge into Ferrara's society. He was also hosting Bembo at his home and resolved to matchmake the pair. Why? It seems intellectual curiosity. What would happen if you threw these two personalities together? I don't know. Let's see. Strozzi, ever the showman, was fond of throwing balls for Lucrezia at his mansion in Ferrara, and at one of these, in January 1503, his two friends fell for each other completely. Bembo wrote a few days after to a friend, quote, Every day I find her a still worthier lady, seeing she has far excelled all my expectations, great though they were, after hearing so many reports of her. The two began to correspond regularly, and their attraction only intensified that summer when Alfonso went on a foreign trip to inspect some artillery. And no, that's not Eve. She sent Bembo snippets of her favourite love poems, each poignant with their theme of the lonely, loveless existence she was enduring. One of them, from the Aragonese poet Lope de Estoniga, reads, I think were I to die and with my wealth of pain cease longing, 
such great love to deny could make the world remain unloving. When I consider this, death's long delay is all I must desire, since reason tells me bliss is felt by one enthrall to such fire. He responded with a poem of his own writing, which read in part, So lively is my suffering, and so dead my hope, that one cannot seize, nor the other seek to hold. Their letters are full of this, expressions of love and longing. In one, she enclosed a lock of her golden hair, which now resides in the Galleria Ambrosiana in Milan. Upon receipt, he rushed off a reply, quote, What joy for me! Every day you seem some new way to fan my ardour. Today you did this with what would once adorned your lovely brow. It doesn't seem that this love developed into something physical at this stage. Lucrezia was flirting with him, reeling him in, but nothing more, and it drove Bembo wild. Here is a letter written in July 1503. Quote, I rejoice that each day to increase my fire you cunningly devise some fresh incitement, such as that which encircled your glowing brow today. If you do such things because, feeling some little warmth yourself, you wish to see another burn, I shall not deny that, for each spark of yours untold etnas are raging in my breast. And if you do so because it is natural for you to relish another suffering, who in all justice could blame me if he but knew the reasons for my ardour? Truly I can do no sin if I put my faith in such a gospel and in so many miracles. Let love wreak just revenge for me, if upon your brow you are not the same as in your heart. However, Lucrezia's budding new romance was interrupted, as it so often was, by her family's actions. Cesare was growing too powerful for the liking of his French allies, who were further alarmed when a cohort of nine cardinals was appointed, none of whom were French, and all were close to the Borgia allies. France and Spain were at loggerheads once more over the throne of Naples, and the Borgias were in danger of being caught square in the middle. And then things got even more dangerous. In August, shortly after celebrating the 11th year of his pontificate, Pope Alexander fell ill with a vomiting fever. The doors of the Vatican slammed shut. No one knew if the Holy Father was alive or dead. In fear for their titles and livelihoods, Borgia allies scrambled to secure their positions while their enemies circled the wagons. Then, to make matters worse, Cesare came down with the same virus. On the 18th of August, while his son fought for his life, Pope Alexander succumbed to the illness. The news was kept a secret from all but a few. Lucrezia wasn't even officially told, but she found out from some friends in the know at the papal court. She took the news hard. According to Bembo, he found her, quote, lying in that darkened room and in that black gown, so tearful and disconsolate. Her relations with her father had always been complicated, but her love for him was never in doubt. He had sold her off in marriage multiple times, only to call off the engagements. He, along with Cesare, had had at least two of her lovers killed, including her second husband, and treated her as a pawn in his Machiavellian schemes. But the two had shared a close bond that never wavered in its intensity, one so close that it has been misconstrued as something more taboo. But not only was this a personal tragedy for Lucrezia, it was a political nightmare. 
Her position and rank were dependent on her family name and power. She may be the Duchess-in-waiting of Ferrara, but was only there because the King of France and the Pope had forced Hercule d'Este's hand. Now the Pope was dead, and King Louis XII was Cesare Borgia's enemy. There was little to stop the Destes from repudiating Lucrezia and dissolving the marriage, but they did not. Their relationship may have gotten off to a rocky start, but Ercole d'Este liked and respected Lucrezia. Alfonso may not have loved his wife, but he was content enough. She had also ingratiated herself with Cardinal Ippolito d'Este and other senior members of the family. Except, of course, Isabella. She still hated her guts. Her position in Ferrara seemingly secure, she scrambled to help her family. Cesare managed to get himself off his sickbed to launch a lightning campaign that saw him double-cross the Spanish while making a deal with the French. Lucrezia sent troops and money to help his cause and managed to keep her father-in-law on side at this crucial time. There was also the matter of her son, Rodrigo. If you remember, she had been forced to leave him behind in Rome when she left for Ferrara and was being raised by her cousin, Cardinal Francesco Borgia. The boy was locked up in the Castel Sant'Angelo at this time, ostensibly for his own safety, though it looked far more like a jail sentence. Cardinal Borgia advised her to send Rodrigo to Spain to be raised by her late husband's relatives, but Lucrezia wanted to have him by her side. She appealed to her father-in-law, but he sided with the cardinal. He hadn't wanted Lucrezia's son from a previous marriage around before, and his mind had not changed. However, Lucrezia was utterly unwilling to send her only acknowledged child overseas to be raised by relations she did not know. She therefore brokered a compromise, whereby he would be raised by his aunt Sancha in Naples. He wouldn't be by her side, but at least he would be raised by someone she knew. Moreover, we know from looking at her finances that she sent him money and clothes and continued to care for his welfare. Indeed, one could argue that, for the time, she was quite an involved parent, despite being hundreds of miles away. All of this distraction, though, was causing a bit of trouble in her love life. Bembo's family encouraged him to return to Venice, and Lucrezia was getting a bit jealous. The two started to fight. Lucrezia accused him of being false and betraying her. He replied, Think me false as much as you will. Believe the truth as little as you please. But the day shall come when you must acknowledge how far you judged me wrong. He often reminisced about happier times. Quote, Often I find myself recalling certain words spoken to me. Some on the balcony with the moon as witness. Others at that window I shall always look upon so gladly. But there is a hint of gaslighting here. While he accused her of holding him at arm's length, his letters are also full of excuses for why he couldn't see her. By the time the year was out, he was indeed back in Venice. As he left, he left her with this promise, that he would always, quote, be that faithful flower to whom you alone and forever remain the sun. The death of Lucrezia's father, Pope Alexander, had not ushered in significant change. 
the Borgias had hoped to elect one of their supporters. The Della Rovere's, the other faction in the Ascendancy, wanted their leader, Cardinal Giuliano Della Rovere. Fearful of splitting the peninsula in twain, the College of Cardinals did what they always did when faced with a difficult decision, and there wasn't a strong financial incentive, pump the ball downfield and elect an elderly Pope. This would give them enough time to wheel and deal and elect a man to replace him who best suited their pocketbooks, I mean, of course, God's will. This is how the 64-year-old Pope Pius III was elected. And their plan worked, for about a month or so, after which the Pope died, making him the eighth shortest reigning Pope in history. During his incredibly brief pontificate, Pius had protected Cesare Borgia from his enemies, but his death ushered in the death knell. Mobs egged on, armed, and funded by the Della Rovere surrounded his home in Rome, and he was forced to draw his sword and literally fight his way out. With Cesare neutralised, Giuliano Della Rovere was elected as Pope Julius II. He too was not a young man, he was 60 years old, but he was an energetic, imperious, and vengeful man with a violent temper. He was not so much interested in the spiritual powers of the papacy. He wanted to rule the lands of the papal states like an emperor. And to do that, one man stood in his way. Cesare Borgia. Julius toyed with his prey, lulling him into a false sense of security, pretending all would be well if he just surrendered some of his lands, before sending the full force of the papacy against him. Eventually, that great double-crosser was betrayed and captured. His lands, so painstakingly and bloodily captured, retaken in a matter of weeks. Lucrezia did all she could to secure his release, but to no avail. Cesare was sent far away to Spain for his captivity. But don't worry, we're not done with him just yet. Lucrezia, meanwhile, was on the rebound. Her passionate fling with Pietro Bembo was only just in the rearview mirror, when a figure from her past journeyed back into her life. She had not met Francesca Gonzaga, husband of her sister-in-law come frenemy Isabella d'Este, for over eight years, not since he had been honoured by her father after leading the papal army to victory at Fornova. He was a caddish ladies' man, though what the ladies saw in him is a little unclear. His likenesses show a man with large, wet lips, bulging eyes, and a dark face marked with the unmistakable signs of syphilis, known then as the French disease. Apparently, that's what passed for sexy back then. But he had a way with words, a powerful charm that seemingly broke down the defences of many a noble woman. Modern doctors may have deemed him a sex addict, alongside his wife and official mistress, whom he brought with him on public engagements to Isabella's acute embarrassment, he is known to have slept with innumerable young women and also men. For Lucrezia, her attraction to Gonzaga is relatively easy to diagnose. It's positively Freudian. He was a man just like her father and brother. And the fact that he was Isabella's husband surely only sweetened the deal. Any chance to get one over on that stuck-up snob. If Pietro Bembo was a romantic, courtly sort of love for Lucrezia, Gonzaga was a burning passion. Their letters smoulder with an intensity of feeling, and we only have a tiny number 
of what we know was a great deal of correspondence. They couldn't spend as much time together as they would have liked, though. Lucrezia's husband Alfonso was back in town, attending on his father, whose health was failing. While she had no real romantic feelings towards Alfonso, nor he to her, they both saw the political value in their partnership. The Borgias may be a spent force, but Lucrezia still had powerful connections that Alfonso could exploit. And, of course, when, in January 1505, Ercole d'Este finally died, Lucrezia was able to finally realise her long-term dream. She was now the Duchess Consort of Ferrara, secure finally in a position that could not easily be taken from her, running one of the most cultured courts in all of Renaissance Italy. Alfonso had not shown much interest in the affairs of state until his father had fallen ill, but he stepped up to the mark when the time came, and hit the ground running when he became the Duke. He still found plenty of time for his leisure pursuits, but became a diligent and hard-working sovereign, relieving, for example, the onerous tax burden imposed by his father. Lucrezia, who already had plenty of experience in affairs of state, remember she had run the papal court for a time, fitted into this new life like a well-tailored suit. Alongside all the traditional duties of the consort, she was also placed in charge of dealing with the petitions of private citizens. This was no small thing. By controlling who, and perhaps more importantly, who did not see the Duke, she was placed in a position of tremendous power. And it is a measure of her familial loyalty that one of the first things she did with this new power and influence was to try and secure her brother's release. She wrote to her new squeeze Gonzaga asking for his help in influencing the new Pope and the King of Spain to free Cesare. Lucrezia was an intelligent and astute woman, but she could be remarkably naive when it came to her family. There was no way that any of these men, especially Gonzaga, who hated Cesare, would agree to this. The former Duke of the Romagna would remain at his most Catholic Majesty's pleasure for a little while longer. While this remained a source of incredible frustration and worry for Lucrezia, there was also some joy. She was pregnant again, and on the 19th of September gave birth to a son, Alessandro, named for her father's pontifical name. Unfortunately, the boy was sickly and immediately developed a fever. A month later, he was dead. This was the second child that Lucrezia and Alfonso had had together that had not survived, and it could not have come at a worse time. The Deste family was about to collapse into an internecine rivalry known to history rather excitingly, as The Conspiracy. It all started over a musician. The Deste court was, as I've said, an exceptionally cultured one, with powerful nobles employing troops of musicians to impress each other. One of the most famous was Don Reynaldo, who had previously been in the employ of Alfonso's half-brother, Giulio, but had recently been poached by another brother, Cardinal Ippolito. Furious, Giulio launched an armed raid on Ippolito's household to seize Rinaldo back. Alfonso was furious at this and exiled Giulio from Ferrara. Lucrezia, who, as we know, took family very seriously, did her best to mend the rift between the brothers, saying, quote, This is no time to remember affronts and hatreds. Thanks to these efforts, after a few months in the doghouse, 
Giulio was welcomed back to Ferrara, but soon after, they fell out again. This time, it was a matter of the heart. Both Giulio and Ippolito had fallen for one of Lucrezia's ladies, an 18-year-old called Angela. This resulted in Giulio being attacked in the road, dragged from his horse, and blinded in one eye. Alfonso tried to hush all of this up, and cleared his brother Ippolito from wrongdoing, which, as you might imagine, didn't exactly sit well with Giulio. Furious at both of his half-brothers, he hatched a conspiracy to have both of them killed. This had all escalated very quickly. His main problem is that he and his fellow plotters could not decide who to kill first, Alfonso or Ippolito. Hired bandits stalked the streets of Ferrara with poisoned daggers, but the prevarications at the top of the conspiracy meant that no one ever gave the final go-ahead order. This all went on for so long that inevitably someone talked. While Alfonso was away in Venice, Ippolito moved against his brother and his fellow plotters. Things looked bleak for Giulio, but he was saved by the unlikeliest double act of Lucrezia and Isabella. Though they disliked each other, they were unwilling to let the Deste blood be spilt. Giulio, along with another plotting brother, Ferrante, was spirited away to Mantua, under the protection of Gonzaga and Isabella. While the ringleaders had made it out, most of the conspirators were rounded up, and Alfonso took his frustrations out on those poor men. These were difficult days for Lucrezia, who could not stand living in a palace while men were being tortured in the dungeons below, and then brutally executed outside her window. Eventually, under threat of attack from Alfonso, Gonzaga was forced to give up the two Deste brothers. Their lives were spared, but they were sentenced to a life behind bars. Lucrezia likely was relieved that her intervention had saved her brothers-in-law, and then overjoyed from news from Spain. Cesare had escaped. In a move right out of Hollywood, he had smuggled a rope into his room in a tall tower and used it to climb out. During the escape, the rope had been cut and he had been severely injured after falling from a great height, but despite this, he was able to make it to Pamplona and the protection of his brother-in-law, the King of Navarre, who was at war with Spain. Cesare was given a military command, but was caught in an ambush and then killed in March 1507. Lucrezia took the news extremely hard, exclaiming in grief, quote, the more I try to please God, the more he tries me. Not wanting the court to see her grief, she shut herself away in rooms, quote, torturing herself day and night in her anguish. However, when she emerged a few days later, she had regained her composure and was praised for her fortitude. Alfonso wrote to his brother Ippolito that he was, quote, much pleased that her ladyship, our consort, has borne this calamity so patiently. There is little doubt, though, that this was just a front. Family and loyalty were everything to Lucrezia. And with Cesare's death, she was the last Borgia left standing. But while she no longer carried the Borgia name, she was still trying to produce Deste children that would carry her blood into future generations. In the spring of the following year, 1508, she gave birth, finally, to a healthy child, a son they named Ercole after his paternal grandfather. Although she was careful not to cast doubt on the paternity of her children, 
This did not mean that she wasn't still engaging in her affair with Francesca Gonzaga. He and her husband were still not on speaking terms following their falling out over Giuliano d'Este. This didn't exactly make for easy relations between husband and wife, and things got even more tense when Ercole Strazzi, the matchmaker who had brought Lucrezia and her former lover Pietro Bembo together, was found murdered in the streets. Many pointed the finger at Alfonso, accusing him of jealousy over his wife's adultery, or putting it down as a crime of passion as the two were pursuing the same woman. The sources are divided over this, so it's impossible to say who is to blame. But the simple fact is that yet another person close to Lucrezia had met with a violent death. As I've said before, the passionate men around Lucrezia made her very dangerous to know. However, it did not deter her from continuing her affair with Francesco Gonzaga, because, for better or worse, Lucrezia had never let fear get in the way of doing what she wanted, and she knew that the son she had produced protected her from any reprisal from her husband. So long as she was discreet, she'd get away with seeing Gonzaga. However, it helped that Alfonso was about to be taken away from the duchy for several years, because war was coming back to Italy. In December 1508, a treaty called the League of Cambrai was signed. This was ostensibly a peace between France, the Holy Roman Empire, the Papacy and Spain, but in reality it was directed at Venice, which had used the collapse of Cesare Borgia's regional empire to gain rather too much power for everyone's liking. Alfonso was named commander of the Pope's army and led it to a number of stunning victories, while his rival, Gonzaga, was captured by the Venetians. Lucrezia was distraught, but her husband couldn't care less. Nor could Gonzaga's wife, Isabella, who disliked her husband intensely and rather enjoyed being able to run Mantua in his stead. He would not be released for over a year. Alfonso did manage to occasionally visit Ferrara, enough to make Lucrezia pregnant again, resulting in August 1509 in the birth of another son, Ippolito. She took no maternity leave, ably running Ferrara, ensuring that the army was well supplied and paid, and the duchy was governed correctly. The war was going swimmingly until 1510, when Pope Julius had a radical change of heart. He wanted total control over all the papal states, starting with the duchy of Ferrara. He therefore switched sides and joined Venice and went on the attack. The assaults would be led by none other than Francesco Gonzaga, who would prove an inferior commander to Alfonso. Ferrara was placed under interdict and Alfonso was excommunicated. Lucrezia was so worried for her safety that she made plans to flee the city for Milan, but the people of Ferrara begged her to stay. She was beloved by her people and so remained. In December 1510, the papal armies led by Julius himself were almost at the gates of Ferrara. Gonzaga, sidelined from command, wrote to the Pope urging him to show clemency to Lucrezia when the city inevitably fell. He said that, quote, because of the loving and faithful terms which only she used towards me in the time when I was in prison in Venice, this place is an obligation on me now to show her my gratitude. And if the providence of his holiness does not help us, I do not know what will become of this poor woman who alone demonstrated such compassion to me. However, it wouldn't come to that. 
the French came to the rescue of Ferrara, driving the papal army back. Lucrezia made quite an impression on the French. She hosted numerous parties and used the opportunity to make the city an oasis of culture and fun in a region devastated by war. One French commander, Chevalier Bayard, was absolutely wowed by her, writing, quote, The good Duchess received the French before all the others with every mark of favour. She is a pearl in this world. She daily gave the most wonderful festivals and banquets in the Italian fashion. I venture to say that neither in her time nor for many years before this has there been such a glorious princess, for she is beautiful and good, gentle and amiable to everyone. The war continued for many more years, the battles getting ever more bloody. In April 1512, a Franco-Ferrarese army won at Ravenna, a battle that claimed over 10,000 lives on either side. However, this war is intensely complicated, bringing in almost every significant power in Europe, including England. Tudor fans among you may be familiar with the Battle of the Spurs, which took place in northern France around this time. Even the death in 1513 of Pope Julius would not end the conflict, as his successor, Leo X, was a Medici, and thus was no friend of the French. He did, however, lift Alfonso's excommunication and Ferrara's interdict, which was at least something. Important though it is, the various twists and turns of the conflict are not crucial for our story. Suffice to say that it would go on for the next few years, with Lucrezia and Gonzaga remaining on opposite sides. This did put something of a dampener on their sex lives, but they did continue to write to each other through intermediaries, their letters mixing the everyday with the passionate. But Lucrezia's day-to-day was filled with the mundane business of governing a duchy. It wasn't glorious, it wasn't sexy, but she did it well. And perhaps the best evidence of this is the lack of complaint. Competence is rarely remarked upon until it is absent. You know it when it isn't there. And with Lucrezia, it was there in spades. She also found time to have two more children. The first... Another, called Alessandro, met with the same fate as his namesake brother, but in July 1515, she gave birth to her first daughter, Leonora, who was named for her paternal grandmother. The following year came another son, Francesco, a curious name as there was no one of that name in either of their immediate families. Perhaps he was named for Gonzaga. She was 37 years old when she gave birth to Francesco, a true geriatric mother for her day. The fact that she was still having children long after she had provided the customary heir and spare does indicate a closeness between Lucrezia and Alfonso. If their relationship had been truly transactional, one would imagine that they would have stopped sleeping with each other after a sensible number of children had been born. It would be stretching it to call it love, but perhaps over time it had developed into something close to it. This relationship became even more important to her in March 1519, when Francesco Gonzaga died of the syphilis that had afflicted him for so many years. He and Lucrezia were still writing to each other right to the end, making him the longest lasting of all of her loves. In one of the last letters, she wrote how happy she felt in, quote, How you love me with all your heart, which although you have made this clear to me many times, Still, it pleases me on every occasion, whenever it happens, to realise it once again. 
At the time, she was pregnant again, and it was proving a difficult one. Each successive pregnancy had made her more and more unwell, and this one made her too ill to carry out her regular duties. She wasn't even able to attend Gonzaga's funeral. Her labour was long and difficult, and the baby, a girl they named Isabella, was so weak that they couldn't feed until the next day. Though she survived, Lucrezia was getting worse, developing a fever. She began to suffer fits and periodically lost the power of sight and speech. She clung on to life for several days, long enough to seek absolution from the new Pope in the hopes of saving her immortal soul. On the 22nd of June, just over a week after the birth of Isabella, she died at the age of 39. Alfonso was distraught, writing in a letter about his wife, who, quote, after an illness of several days with continual fever of the worst kind, having received the sacraments of the church with that devotion which was in conformity with the rest of her life, has given up her spirit to God, leaving me in the greatest imaginable anguish of soul, for it is the most unexpected and the greatest loss. I am writing to you about this grief that oppresses me so greatly, and to those who love me, because it seems that it may give me some relief in my sorrow. She was buried in the convent of Corpus Domini in Ferrara. Alfonso was so overwhelmed at the funeral that he fainted and had to be carried into the sacristy to recover. The ruling heads of Italy sent their condolences, though hatred of the Borgia name and the lingering grievances of years of war meant that few truly grieved her loss. Lucrezia's life was marked by murder and intrigue, but those murderers and intriguers were others, not her. She was no passive pawn. History did not just happen to Lucrezia. She made it by her own actions. But she was also not responsible for many of the outrages, many of the crimes that happened around her. She was intensely loyal to those around her, most particularly her family, who often used that loyalty for their own ends. This period was one of artistic explosion and vicious war, which combined to create characters who became caricatures. Few actors from this period are remembered fondly, because there are so many who had cause to hate them. Of these, Lucrezia Borgia is probably the most infamous. But she is only one. Not an innocent flower, not a temptress whore, just a woman, one of passion, loyalty and intelligence. And if I have achieved anything in this series, I hope it is that that you remember. are on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.